The Single Tracks podcast is brought to you by TPC, the pros closet. Spring is the perfect time to upgrade, and TPC has an industry-leading selection of new and certified pre-owned bikes, plus frames, wheels, and accessories. Each certified pre-owned bike is inspected, tested, and serviced, and every bike includes 30-day returns. Visit tpc.bike forward slash singletracks and enter code singletracks40 to save $40 on every order over 200 That's the pros closet at tpc.bike slash singletracks and look for the link and coupon code in the show notes. Hey everybody, welcome to the Singletracks podcast. My name is Jeff and today my guest is Matt Schreiber. Matt is the general manager and technical director for the Trek Factory Racing Cross Country Team and is based in Durango, Colorado. He's a former pro rider himself and previously served as the technical director for the Trek World Tour Road Team for seven years. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Yeah. So tell us how you made the transition from professional racing to managing race teams. It's a good question. Um, there's definitely not a, there's definitely not a roadmap for, (laughs) for that. And, and these kind of roles. Um, but really the, the things that were uh, important to a job like this are, you know, some technical background. So, Mm -hmm growing up in bike shops, working on bikes, Mm. you know, just a a real knowledge of the equipment Mm -hmm. that we use to race. And then knowledge of racing, of course, Yeah, the riders definitely use the equipment different than most customers. So Mm -hmm. yeah, just knowing how racers use that kind of equipment Mm -hmm. and being being a bike racer, that really helps you, right? You, you, You get that experience using the product day to day. Mm-hmm. Um, the way a normal customer doesn't. So you get pretty particular with what you, what you want. Yeah. So, and then obviously education. Yeah. I did go to school here in Durango at Fort Lewis college and I have a degree in exercise science. So hmm. that helped the transition from racing. Um, I was doing my education, obviously why I was still racing, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, having, having that for the plan B when the racing didn't pan out, <clears throat> had a good education and yeah. And, and also a good network of people through racing and school. And that, that really just kind of led me to the opportunities at Trek or, you know, yeah. so when I was done racing, it was, I still kept dabbling in, in a little bit of racing, but I wasn't racing full-time professional. And that, that kind of opened different doors. You know, you're, when you're, <clears throat> when you're racing professionally, you're, you have to use what you're provided and what your mm-hmm. partners are and th- with the, of the team. And when you're done racing, you kind of have different opportunities. So this was right. where I could, I could start to make some relationships with some companies and do some testing. And um, that's really how I started with Trek was, hmm. I was actually not working for Trek, but doing some mountain bike racing and just testing some, some bikes for Trek that they were, yeah, just wanted feedback on. So that's, that's kind of opened the door there to Trek. Yeah. Interesting. As a racer, where did you feel like that, like your team managers and, and liaisons like did a good job or, or were there things where you're like, huh, wonder why they do that? Or like, if I'm ever the manager, I'm going to, I'm going to do it different. Everybody does it different for sure. Hmm. You know, I would say 
there, there were definitely people in the team liaison roles, um, manager roles before me, and they didn't, they did it wrong. Mm-hmm. I did it my way. I did, I do things my way. They did it their way. Yeah. I'm not sure. Well, the only, I would say the, the wrong way is to do nothing. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's the hardest part about, about it, you know, being a liaison and managing teams or, you know, the working with the athletes and the partners is just keeping everybody happy. And mm. so that's, you know, figuring that out, <clears throat> how to do that successfully. Yeah. That's, that's really the biggest part of, of the job, you know, making sure everybody's happy. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, really your, your main skill is being like a people person and, and being someone who can manage relationships. What are kind of like the, the main responsibilities outside of that, uh, being a, a pro team liaison or a general manager? Yeah, you're, you're correct. Being a, being a team liaison is relationships and mm-hmm. working with people. And, you know, it's, it's definitely easier when, where we are now, where we, we own most of our teams. And so we have, mm-hmm. we have a lot more say, we have a lot more control. And so that's made my role easier. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're just a partner, it's a little bit more complicated because there's yeah. a lot more, there's a lot more people involved in the decision-making. Right. So, but yeah, it's just trying to keep people happy. The biggest also, you know, the, the main responsibilities of the liaison are really just you're managing the relationship that the company has with a team and the team has with the company. So you're always in the middle, every decision, everything that's going on, you're responsible for making sure that, that the riders have, you know, state of the art cutting edge technology that we're racing Mm -hmm. on the best equipment and educating them on how to use it. Right. Mm -hmm. And then also, also not just the athletes, but the staff. So, in a way, you're kind of a, an insurance policy too, just because hmm. making sure that the equipment's working well, everybody's happy with it, that the mechanics know how to work on it, um, just so there's no problems. You know, the last thing, yeah. the most stressful days are when you when you have a problem or something that happens and it's on live TV, and <clears throat> that's really what you want to avoid. So, yeah, but yeah, that's that's it in a nutshell. Um, we. Liaison's also just really responsible for all the product for benchmarking product that's out there, our competitors, what what the riders need, the direction that we should mm-hmm. we should go and reporting that back to either our partner or in my case Trek HQ, you know. Mm-hmm. We've got riders come with a specific ask for a specific event and because we've got a goal and how do we get there, you know? And so it's really how it's really how a new product gets developed. So, yeah. Interesting. Well, so, um, as the general manager of the Trek, Trek factory racing cross country team, do you have like a staff of folks who help with, I mean, I imagine there's so much, there's like logistics and there's travel and, and all that stuff. Like how, how big is the team that manages the team? Yeah, that's, that's a great question too. It is complicated because we are a global race team, mm-hmm. and so we're racing, we're racing all over, um, and we're often racing a couple different programs. So, you know, last weekend, for example, we were we were racing in Puerto Rico. At the same time, we're racing with another squad in Spain, 
And so, yeah, there's a lot of logistics. We have, uh, we actually have a service course, which is right next door to our Trek Segafredo road, road team service course there in Belgium. Hmm. Um, and that's a building that is our race team hub. It has all of our, all of our team equipment in it, all of our spare parts, clothing, nutrition products, everything is in that hub, all of our vehicles and so that's the home base, and we have a an operations manager there. Mm-hmm. He keeps the lights on, keeps the vehicles working, shipping, receiving, pays everybody. Mm-hmm. And then we also have three three mechanics that travel with the team to every race full, full time, and same with the soigneurs. Mm-hmm. And we have two soigneurs, and the soignier role is it varies. It's can be from a massage therapist up to a osteopath or a, hmm. yeah. So, and, and then we also have a performance director, performance manager. Okay. Um, that's actually a new role that, that we decided to add this year. It was something that, that we were missing. Um, so we added a performance manager to the team. And then we also have a sports psychologist that works with the road oh, wow. team, but also works now with the mountain bike team. Okay. And yeah. And then we have our in-house Trek race shop, uh, marketing brand manager, Ryan Bodge. Um, mm-hmm. so he oversees all the socials and makes sure the partners get everything that they need. So, and that's just, that's to support seven athletes. So it's, it's about a two to one ratio of people to, wow. to athletes in the mountain bike team. Mm-hmm. Wow. Interesting. Well, so yeah, I mean, you mentioned that there are these like shared resources in, in terms of like sports psychologists and, and, uh, athletic trainers, I guess, for lack of a better term. Do some of the athletes bring their own training teams? Like, do they have coaches that they work with that, that they bring on board or do they tend to use the coaches that, that the team provides? It's a, it's a little bit of both. Um, actually, you know, this is my second season managing the mountain bike team. So my background has been working with the road team where we had Mm -hmm. this huge network of support people to help, Mm -hmm. help the riders. And at the end of the day, we want the riders to just have to worry about training, um, having what they need, just recovery, Mm -hmm. racing training. And so anything we can do to help them achieve their goals and take some stress off, Mm -hmm you know, that was something that's what we need to do. Right. So in the last year we looked at, you know, where we want to be in a few years from now, Mm kind of how we, uh, my experiences with the road team and with, with the race shop, we decided to add, try to utilize some of the road team staff where we could and implement it in the mountain bike. So Mm -hmm. it's right now a little bit of a hybrid and we definitely allow riders to use their own coaches, use their own, you know, psychologist, sports psychologist, or, but at the same time, we try to give them a lot of the tools that if they want to use our people, they can. And it, mm-hmm. what we see is because those people are at the races, they, you get a stronger connection with the athlete. And so over time, uh, right. yeah, it, it can be just more beneficial for them to work with our coach, you know, our, our mm. performance manager or our psychologist, because they're, more frequently there. And, and, and in this world, it's, it's a relationship. you hmm. you know, you need to know the people, especially sports psychologists. That's a relationship. Yeah. Coaches are a relationship. So if it works well for them, great. 
we're there to support them. They have those tools. It's something that we've worked really hard on in the last year to, to help, to give them every opportunity to succeed. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And I imagine it, it does depend on the athletes. Some are going to have certain coaches that they prefer to work with, or maybe they have like a different style of coaching that maybe, you know, the, the team coaches might not be familiar with or whatever. So yeah, that makes sense that it's kind of a mix of both. Yeah. The, the main point there is we are, what's different now is we, we have a race program that we, we run and operate. So we determine the calendar and we, we show, you know, these are the, these are the, these are the objectives of Trek. These are the objectives of the team. This is what we want to do this year. Mm -hmm. Here's how we get there, you know? And so that's, we provide that direction to the riders and the performance manager, even though he may not be coaching the athlete, he's in direct contact with their coaches. So it's oh, really, it's really to give them the feedback that because their coach can't be at every single race, but we have, mm -hmm. we have our performance manager there. He's able to analyze the race, take a look at the data, even if they want that mm -hmm. share thoughts. And, and it's really efficient mm -hmm. get on top of problems when they're happening. And it's just, it's just communication, just good communication. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah. I mean, it does sound like Trek factory racing, uh, is, is set up as really as a team. I mean, you have these like structures in place and things. Um, but then other pro teams seem to be organized under more of like a, a collective where, you know, individual athletes, you know, have their own support staff and things like that. Is there an advantage to doing it one way or another? Or like, what's kind of the philosophy behind those, those two different models? Yeah, I definitely, I know there is an advantage to building a team. Mm. We, we've made it pretty far in the past of just being there for logistics and support. Mm -hmm. but it's kind of back to what I was saying with the structure that we're building. It's really to make everything in-house and it's more beneficial for the team for, for Trek mm -hmm. to um, be involved in their training and their programs. And, you know, it's just being on top of things, um, being in the loop, good communication. I've found that mm -hmm. when we're not organized as a team and we're maybe just there with, a couple mechanics in a swan year and we're not, you know, planning out the year in the, in the season mm -hmm. as a team. And you have a lot of different, different programs and different problems and it's really confusing that way. So yeah. Yeah. Being all on the same page with the same objectives, it's, it's, we're going to be more successful that way. So mm -hmm. that's why we have it set up as a great team. And we've really tried, we try to make sure that we have, you know, we're serious about our goals, but we also want to have some fun together, mm -hmm. have a, have a great positive environment and have the right people in the team. So, cause yeah. you're, you're on the road together 150 days a year. And you know, that's, it's important to be functioning as a unit mm -hmm. when you're yeah. all together that long. So, yeah, I imagine too, that, I mean, not a lot of brands or groups can afford to, to set up a team like this, right? Like, you know, maybe is it like a cost thing for brands too? Is it, is it going to be less expensive if you're running it as more of like a collective of athletes versus, you know, being able to provide like all these resources like, like Trek is able to do? Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's definitely, I would say 
you have to invest a bit up front, but once things get going, it's a, it's a good investment, right? Mm. But yeah, I would say not every team has all the resources yeah. and even, even we struggle with it too, which is why we have to kind of piggyback here a little bit and take, take from the road team or ask for, from <laughs> the road team for some help with, yeah. Yeah. you know, with, from the sports psychologist or, you know, even, even at our camps, we try to attend camps with the road team because that helps our cost and mm-hmm. infrastructure and, but it, but we do benefit from that for sure. Yeah. That does make sense. You can kind of spread the cost out. Yeah. I mean, a sports psychologist is a really nice thing to have that an individual maybe couldn't afford or wouldn't think to like hire someone to do that. But if you have yeah. one for the team and they can, you know, work with multiple athletes, it, it makes sense. Yeah. But I, I think you can also set up a team atmosphere just by having the right people and good communication. Hmm. You know, it doesn't have to, it can, maybe you don't have every tool, but if you have, you know, people that work really well together, communicate well, get along well mm-hmm. and have, you know, you can have a lot of success that way too. So it's really about yeah. having the right people in the right, in the right place. Well, for those who are familiar with road cycling, I mean, it is, it is very much a team sport, um, especially in a lot of the different race formats, you know, riders are able to work together as a team In mountain biking. It's, it's less obvious, like how that works. And, you know, listening to you talk, it it seems like when you're saying team, you're really talking about the athletes plus the support folks. Um, or are you talking about the athletes? Like, are the athletes able to work together as a team and support each other, um, in mountain bike racing. Yeah, I guess you could separate it into the two categories. Like you said, like when I talk about the team, I talk about the staff and the riders Mm -hmm. and we are all one team and we all need to be working together for our goals, Mm -hmm. but there is the racing for sure. And you know, it's, it's a little bit different for sure than road, but there are some points in the races where they can Hmm. be working together as teammates. And I would say it, it does depend on the individual, but sometimes they do work together Hmm. as teammates. And with, with the addition of short track and short track becoming more popular, Mm -hmm. that has opened, it's actually opened the door for some more tactics. I see. And the teams are pretty small still. And so that, that definitely has a impact on team tactics because most, Mm -hmm. most teams have, you know, two, maybe three riders at the most on the same team Mm -hmm. in one race. So there's not a ton that you can do as far as tactics go Mm -hmm. to really, you know, work for one rider on a certain day. But, but yeah, there's, there's definitely opportunities for the riders to work together. And I would just say it's, it's as simple as just not following or not closing the gap when one of your teammates goes and maybe, maybe just following the wheel when someone tries to go up, but not being the one to close the gap. So Mm. um, yeah, but it's, you see it, it's happening more and more. And I think that, I think that adds, yeah, it adds a little bit of excitement, like especially in the short track when it's a little bit more tactical, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it's, it's definitely not quite just because of the short duration of the race and, um, the courses, you know, you're on a single track a lot. So there's, there's not a ton of tactics that can, can happen as far as actual teamwork in the race goes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Interesting. Well, I guess the opposite of that too is like, you don't want your teammates to be actively working against one another, right? So like maybe, maybe that's the level that we're at. Like they're not necessarily able to help each other a whole lot during a race, but the very least being on the same team gives them an opportunity to like, yeah, maybe not, not hurt the other person. Exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, they're, they're fierce competitors. They have the same goals. We're on the same team. We come back to the same, same house, same hotel at the end of the race. But, Mm -hmm. and so on the course, you know, they're, they're going for the same podium spot and, um, but they are really supportive of each other too. Mm. So, and, um, I think that's a little bit of the difference in mountain and road where, yeah, in the, in the road, it's, we're all in for this rider today. We're all in for this rider mm-hmm. and a rider will maybe give up their race in the first hundred K of a, of a road race. And then that let, and then they let their leader take that over where here it's, we're all in mm. to try to get as many on the podium as we can, how we get there and who it is, <clears throat> you know, on the day, it's just kind of up to the riders to sort it out out there. Um, mm. you know, yeah. so, at the end of the day, if they can be happy with how they performed and support each other, and maybe one day it's Yolanda winning, maybe it's Gwendolyn the next day or Vlad, but we're all psyched for each other. Um, mm-hmm. they can, then they can help carry the whole momentum of the team. You know, that's better for everybody. So that's, that's really what we hope happens. Yeah. 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 I mean, you mentioned how competitive all these athletes are. Um, it, but at the same time, I've, I've heard, stories about like, particularly on the women's side, you know, just how the women really like support each other and work together, even across teams, like, you know, doing practice laps and kind of, you know, everybody's sessioning and talking about the same like technical feature and like, how do you think we should ride it? And that kind of thing. Do you see that more like on the women's team than the men's team where it's like teamwork is a little more natural for them or, or is it, is it kind of the same for both sides? No, I think I see it. I just think I see it. I see that just more in mountain biking. It's a mm. smaller mountain biking in general. You know, it's, um, it's a professional sport. It's a competitive sport, um, fierce competitors, but everybody respects each other, you mm. know? And it's, again, we see each other at the races, whether we're on the same team or not. And everybody gets along and, and it's, um, yeah, just more of a family, family vibe in the sport, hmm. I think, yeah. than, than road a bit. Um, just friendly. I think that's mountain biking is very approachable in that way. Mm-hmm. It's just a, it's a, it's an approachable atmosphere, approachable sport on race day. It's a little different. They're still like, <laughs> but yeah, yeah pre-ride they'll chat about lines together. Even if it's their competitor the next day, you know, it's, they will, yeah. you know, they, the end of the day it's just riding riding bikes you know yeah that's interesting to know that there is a difference between road and mountain so obviously once once the race season is like in full gear it's a lot of racing it's a lot of different places um you know month to month or even week to week is there a lot of downtime for staff and athlete in between events well it kind of depends on the calendar Um, we definitely, we definitely will have some downtime, but at the same time, we're changing things a bit in our approach to races. And Mm. again, back to the team thing where we're trying to help prepare our riders more, 
for these World Cups. So we do mm-hmm. now we're doing a little bit. We're doing more frequent training camps as a team, mm-hmm. um, providing them the option to do these training camps, um, and then also they'll do they'll do their own training camps even. So downtime in in between the races. Yeah, we're not racing, but we're training, you know, and mm-hmm. we're working on equipment. We're working on getting ready for the next big objectives. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So you are training during the season. I mean, I guess I, oh, yeah. I, I didn't know if most of the training happens during the off season um, and you just kind of focus on recovery, but it sounds like there is, there is enough time to get in training in between races. Is that, is that the case? You have, yeah, you have to actually racing is not actually not the best training. So right. when you're racing every weekend, you actually are losing fitness. Hmm. It's a different kind of fitness. You know, you're losing your endurance basically. And hmm. so at some point you need to pick some races that are maybe not the A priority and you're either going to train through it or you have a block after a important, important period and you do another build phase. And so that's, mm-hmm. that's the training camps that are really important for the next goals in the season. So yeah, downtime, there's a little bit, but it's pretty full gas always. Um, We're definitely, we're definitely always focused and working on the goals. You know, this year we had um, our season ended in September and we were all back together at the end of, at the end of November, early Mm. December doing our first camp. And it wasn't a training camp. It was a fun camp. It was, you know, let's go have some fun together and get to know some new staff and the new riders. And so Mm. we just, you know, try to create that good, good connection with everybody. And so we had a fun, fun training camp in Arizona where we just, we did a fake, like a cruise around the Southwest in some RVs and really got to know each other and did some sweet mountain bike rides. Yeah. Is that fun? I was going to ask, like you said, it's it's focused on fun. Does that mean bikes or does that mean anything but bikes? Bikes, bikes (laughs) always have to be involved. Um, yeah, it was, we were, we were juggling what was the best to do for, for the team and team building. But of course we have athletes and a lot of the staff are also athletes and passionate Mm -hmm. about riding. And so it turned out that riding needed to be a part of it, of course. So, yeah, but yeah, that was the, Hey, we had, we had a good season. We have a new season coming up. Let's not be apart for so long, keep the connection. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we start doing the hard work already after the holidays in January, you know, race and then racing starts in February. So we're, we're already into our season. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think a lot of us, you know, we're familiar with that idea of training camps and we'll see like videos or, you know, media that's produced from that, but it usually, it does just seem to be like the preseason training or, you know, the off season stuff, but yeah, it's good to know that this is, this is ongoing. This happens during, you know, the race season and yeah, pretty much whenever, whenever there's an opportunity, it sounds like. Yes, Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Cause it is a long season and what you do in November, December, isn't going to carry your, you all the way to October. So mm-hmm. you got to hit the reset in there, do some more builds, you know, specific training to, to maintain that, that fitness throughout the year. Yeah. Well, so you mentioned, uh, you know, how a race team is a team and people need to be able to work together. And, and it's a lot of it is about these relationships. So I'm curious to know how team athletes are selected. Is this 
generally a business decision or do you also take into account things like how people are going to work together and sort of their personality and, and that sort of thing? Yeah. I mean, there's, that's a great question. It's really important that they fit, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's not all about results. Results are great. For sure, we would like to be on the podium. Mm-hmm. But if if they're not good people, then then yeah, we don't we don't really want want them in the team. Yeah. And so that's that's from athletes to staff. You know, it's got to be the right fit. Mm-hmm. And so we try to we try to select people that we feel like align with our you know our our principles our brand mm-hmm. principles and and but also our partners and and that we feel like are going to be good representatives for track but also for bike racing mm. you know and and for the sport just yeah. um of course like i said winning's great but you also need to be winning off the bike so <laughs> right yeah yeah, that makes sense. I mean, is that ever does it ever come down to that where there's an argument where someone's like, "Hey, we really need this person because they fill this, you know, gap that we have. You know, we really want to do well in this event this year or whatever." Uh, versus other people who are saying, "Hold on, like, I don't know if you know this person's a good fit for the team." Yeah, I mean, they definitely people definitely have to fit the the long term, you know, yeah. um, because. Yeah, whether it's staff or riders, um, people come and go, and in the end, we want to have the team and the brand and and right. the team go on for forever. So, um, yeah, it's like it's it's, it's got to be right. You know, it's got to be the right fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense too. That it is a continuum, right? Like you're representing Trek, and so there are going to be certain athletes that fit that sort of brand. Um, Whereas other athletes, you'd bring them on and it would totally change kind of the character of the team. And, and that's obviously not, not within your goals uh, for what you're trying to do. Yeah. It's, it, it's important to have a really a, a diverse team too. You know, people, it, we like to have people from different, different countries. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in the mountain bike teams, it's a little, it's, it's smaller, but you know, in the road team, we have all different nationalities um, and that actually is, it just helps the vibe in the team too. Mm. You know, you you don't have one, one nation that's dominating the conversation at the dinner table, you know, or, um, it just, it creates a a better environment, different, Mm. different things. You know, it doesn't get stale when it's different cultures and different, different people from all over. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine you learn a lot from each other. And one of the questions I have is, is it difficult? Like, is language barrier a difficulty? Because like you said, a lot of these athletes, even on the mountain bike team, a number of them are from different European countries, uh, you know, as American athletes, like, does everybody just speak English? Is that like the default? And then, um, but I imagine that would be hard for some athletes, like if they're not, not super fluent. Yeah, English is the official language of the team. Okay. Everybody has to have a basic level of English, whether it's the writers or the staff and, you know, mm-hmm. that's just that's important for just communication, you know, right. like just the understanding the the team handbook or emails mm-hmm. or whatever, but Yeah. Um but also for me and my role just important really for like 
equipment, you know, feedback, stuff like mm-hmm. that to, to the company are really important protocols, but it can, it's a challenge sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. I would say we don't, we definitely don't overlook people unless they don't, if they don't speak, if, if they can't speak any English, it's, it's not going to work, you know? Right. Yeah. That'll be but, tough. But we also have helped staff improve their English. Hmm. And so like in, in our road team, for example, we've, we provide courses to them that Trek pays for so that they can improve their English. So it's not only helping them with the team, but it's helping them outside of the team as yeah. well. So, but yeah, it's communications key, you know, so we got to be able to, to communicate, but um, it, we get along fine and we make it, we make it work. And everybody in our team speaks good enough English that, <laughs> that there's never issues. Yeah. Good to know. So I imagine there's a lot of stressful parts about being a a team manager. What are some of the like most stressful moments or or are there times like things that happen that, that still stand out that you're like, Oh my gosh, that still gives me sweats because that was so stressful. Yeah. I think actually one of the hardest, just looking back at the last two years has been managing COVID Mm. and that in the team and, Mm -hmm. and just you're, there's a lot of different opinions and then you're in different countries where the regulations are different. And, mm, yeah. And so, you know, one day it's fine to do this because this country says that, or this doctor says that, but mm-hmm. so that was for me personally, that was a big challenge for me in mm-hmm. the last, in the last years with just keeping people healthy, making sure that we're doing the right thing for the public mm-hmm. public's health as well, even though we want to race and we're there to race and, but doing the right thing and mm-hmm. looking at looking at the big picture in the long term, that was definitely one of the hardest things to manage. And then just making sure everybody has the hardest things to do or in my role or just making sure everybody has the the feeling that they can talk to you, that they have mm-hmm. the support that they need and that everybody's getting along. You know, that's that's the hardest thing yeah. being a manager. So you're kind of a camp counselor in a way. <laughs> Um, sometimes, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds, I mean, you're a problem solver is, is the main thing it seems like. Yeah. And and yeah, being just the first part of that is making it so people feel comfortable to come with to you when they have a problem so that you can, you make sure it gets solved. For sure. Yep. Yeah, it is. Um, and then the other, the other most stressful times are if we have a equipment problem that costs Mm -hmm. us a result you know, or Ooh, yeah. fortunately we, we have great product and good partners that that's really rare mm-hmm. that that does happen, but it happens occasionally where you miss out because something happened and, and then yeah. the phone's blowing up with what, what's going on over there. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then right. just, you know, sorting that out and, and making sure that we have, have that fixed before our next big event and our next goals so that we, we don't have the same mistake twice, you know, that's, mm. But those are always stressful days when you're, when you have an issue that costs you some, a result. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you mentioned that the role is really, you're the go between, between the brand and the athletes and sort of the race program. So is there a lot of pressure from the brand to win races? Is that like a big part of, of how the team is evaluated or, or is there something else? Uh, you know, our, our goals are to win races, but it's not the only, it's not the only thing, you know, we mm-hmm. have, we have teams for the main, two main reasons, and that's marketing and product development, right? Mm-hmm. So of course, winning, 
winning races is, is great. We want to be on the podium as often as possible, but it's not the only thing. And that's not mm. how we measure the success. It's, it's, um, it's back to having every race is an opportunity to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that story is a story of, you know, awesome success where we win the race and, or we sweep the podium or, but sometimes it's a different story. Mm. It's, and sometimes it's about the struggle, yeah. you know, in the race, but it is, it is a story and, it's back to just taking those opportunities to tell, tell stories, whether Mm -hmm. we're winning or losing and, but sharing that with our fans, you know, and sharing it with the cycling community. And so that's what it's really about engaging with people and inspiring people and connecting them with our partners and our riders and our, and our brand. Hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, you mentioned that the like kind of two pronged approach or, two goals really, right? Marketing and then product development. And, Mm -hmm. you know, thinking about that, it's almost like you win if you win and you win if you lose, because if you lose, then you, you have an opportunity to learn something about the product or, or whatever. Yes. Correct. And yeah, so (laughs) that's, that's an interesting way to look at it. We always learn something, you know, we, we learn where we maybe could improve for that, for that race the next year, you know, Mm -hmm when we finish those, when we finish the races, we always have a a race report that we do. Um, so it's mechanics do a race report and then I do a report just on our performance, you know, how we did. Mm -hmm. And we try to learn right away. Like what, what did we, what did we do well here? What didn't, didn't go well, where can Mm -hmm. we improve? And then, yeah, the athletes are always giving us that feedback so that we're giving that to our partners at SRAM or Pirelli or whoever Trek to, to make a better product for us. Hmm. And so we can hit, hit those goals. And ultimately what we're doing out there trickles down to our customers. Mm-hmm. So what the teams are using, you know, and what, what the riders are pushing us for to develop ends up, ends up on, you know, the bike in the garage for, for the customer at the store. So, yeah, yeah, that's, and that's really important to us. You know, like we learn, we're always learning from the teams. It's really, it's, yeah. it's cool too. Like the stuff that's we awesome. learn is pretty cool. Well, so are you able to then, like, what happens to those reports? Do people kind of read them right away, like, you know, the next, during the week? Or can you go back and see, like, stuff from the 90s and learn from, like, the managers from back then and the athletes from back then? Like, what's what's ultimately happens to that information? I hope we don't go back to the 90s, but... (laughs) (laughs) There's got to be something that was learned and it's kind of just passed down like word of mouth. Yeah. I would say in a, in a way we're going back to the nineties with, with gravel and some of the, some of those trends that are happening with dig up the playbook for that, where we're, we're, we're starting to see some of that from in the gravel where what we did then is kind of what we're doing now and it's working, you know, um, Mm -hmm. with new, new materials and stuff. But, um, the, the reports, uh, those, those do sit in, those do sit in a folder. They go straight to our uh, product managers. Hmm. So for me on the technical side, we have weekly meetings with product managers oh, wow. and just to give that feedback. And if it's something serious, it's like the next day, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, everything is, everything is seen and, and heard by either the director of mountain bike and the product managers and, sometimes even all the way up to the senior level in, in, hmm. in track of, you know, wh- what we need and what we're asking for. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, one of the things that I think is perhaps a bigger part of road racing, but definitely part of mountain biking is anti-doping protocols. Mm -hmm. Uh, how intrusive are those for mountain biking? Is this something that you have to deal with a lot, uh, as a a team manager liaison? Um, or is it, is it pretty low key for the most part? I mean, I actually feel like the athletes have to deal with it more at home Mm. than, than we do at the races. And it's gotten to the point now where it's generally accepted as, Hey, this is a great thing. So it's mm-hmm. not, it's not an inconvenience, which is, it's not, okay. yeah. we're always willing to do it. The riders, the riders understand it, why they have to do it. Mm-hmm. And so it's not sure when they show up at 5am, it's a little bit intrusive to the sleep, yeah. but, um, at the end of the day, no one is really too bent. No one's bent about having to give a, a, a test in, in the morning because, they're protecting their, their sport, you know, they're protecting mm-hmm. the sport and their opportunity to have a clean, clean sport. So, yeah. and it's also gotten better in the last year, even say at the finish of the races where it used to be pretty confusing where you would have to check a board and do I, does the athlete have control? Mm-hmm. Where was it posted? Oh, I can't find where it's posted. Who checked? Mm-hmm. Did you check? I didn't check. Who checked? <laughs> you know? Um, and so now they have a really good protocol where if you're going to get tested at the race, there's a chaperone. The chaperone will be there when you cross the line. Okay. And that's how you know. If the chaperone's not there, then you don't get tested that day. So hmm. that has made it super easy for us in the last, that just started last year. Okay. But and it was much better for everybody. So it wasn't, it wasn't confusing anymore. Yeah. You didn't have to stress, you know, like the, you know, the first thing that some riders ask, did I don't make sure, make sure that I don't have control. And now it's like, <laughs> we know now cause they're there right when you cross yeah. the line. So, yeah. Well, that's surprising that it's not just like a text message or something that's just like, Hey, you, you got flag come over here. Yeah. No, it's, um, it's not, too, it's not intrusive really. Hmm. And it's, it's part of being a professional, whether you're a professional mountain biker or you're a professional tennis player or, you know, football, there's testing mm-hmm. in, in sport, all sports and to make sure that it's fair, yeah. you know, so it's a good thing. And we just kind of have to manage it and acknowledge that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, yeah. So thinking about other sports to me, it seems a little crazy. I mean, really awesome too don't get me wrong that in mountain biking we have world cups every year and there's races spread across multiple continents whereas if you look at like the olympics or even soccer they're only doing these big international competitions every four years so do you think the mountain bike competition model is sustainable i mean it seems like a really big ask and you know it makes it really tough for athletes to get involved because I imagine there's a big expense in all that travel. So is, do you have any thoughts on that? Like how the system is set up and and maybe how it could be improved? That's a, yeah, it's a, it's a really good point observation right now. We're right now we're actually going through some big changes with professional mountain biking with a new broadcaster. And so at this point, there's a lot of wait and see of what, what happens and if, mm-hmm. if things are going to be an improvement or if we've lost something. Yeah. Um, so at the moment, if I'm looking back at how it was in the past and without seeing the few, without having experienced working with um, the new organizers yet, if we are operating on the same model that we have now where we have 
eight, eight or nine world cups a year and a couple that are a couple that are out of Europe. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's excellent. That's sustainable. You know, Mm -hmm. what isn't sustainable is if we start having to travel all over the world, Mm -hmm. but we're not bringing in partners outside of cycling, Mm. you know? So right, right now, most teams are funded by a bike brand or, a clothing company or something it's it's all in the industry and mm-hmm. we're definitely on a good trajectory to attract non-endemic partners into the sport mm-hmm. um and you see that happening more and more but yeah if we if we have a good steady growth and we maybe add a add an event one year and then maybe we'll go to asia some year mm-hmm. you know but if we go from nine events to 15 events in a year <laughs> i think that that'll be super hard for the sport. Um, and for yeah. most teams, most teams won't be able to do that, especially if you're starting to travel outside of Europe, because the core of the sport is still in Europe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but so right now the the format of yeah, eight, eight or nine events is, is sustainable. Mm. And I think it's enough racing that you keep the fans engaged. It's not too much racing where you burn out the riders in the staff, you know, that's mm-hmm. the other thing that you have to take, take into account that we're, we're already traveling 150 days a year. And if we start yeah. adding more races, then you need to add more staff so that you can, mm-hmm. so, cause I like to stay home sometimes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. so right. I like to ride my bike too. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting cause it seems, you know, I remember like when the Enduro world series was coming up, I mean, it's a, it's very ambitious, right. To, to say like, this is a world series, this is a world cup. And then to actually back that up by going to Australia, going to Europe, going to North America. Sometimes you go to South America, sometimes you go to Africa and yeah. It, does that, do you think it works for cycling though? Like at the scale it has been at because cycling is a world event. Like people can connect with the sport kind of wherever they are. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is unique of cycling that mm. it, it does. People can relate to cycling mm-hmm. and for sure there's different hotbeds around the world that are more passionate about it, mm-hmm. but yeah, you can bring a mountain bike race to, to Asia and people, it's going to be successful because you have, there's actually a lot of, there's a lot of people that love to ride bikes there, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I would actually like to see that in the near future. We haven't had a world cup in Asia and it'd be great to have a cross country world cup in Asia. Um, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it's a big trip, but I think it would help grow the sport. Yeah. Awesome. Well, so for core mountain bikers, and I imagine some of our listeners who love riding, some of them, not, not everybody follows pro racing. So what would you tell people like why they should pay attention to pro racing, even if they're not competitors themselves or, you know, they just, just ride for fun. Well, they, that's a good, that's a good question. I think I would say it's, it's about the people, you know, if you enjoy watching or if you enjoy competition at some level, or you can appreciate, even if you're not a competitor, but you can appreciate what athletes, what athletes do, mm-hmm. how they work really hard to get there. And then you see what they're achieving. You know, it's just, it's impressive to watch the riders at the top end of the sport and just their, mm. their skills, you know, on the bike are incredible. Mm-hmm. What, what they're doing now first 10 years ago in a cross country race, just 
blows my mind. It's like what down, <laughs> downhill was 10 years ago. Right. And now we're in cross country. Um, so yeah, there's, it's exciting. The format's exciting. It's, it's not too long. Um, so I think it's, it's easy to, it's easier to watch a cross country mountain bike race or a short track, a short tracks, 20 minutes. And those are super intense. Mm-hmm. And the other side of that is also the technology. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of things that people that maybe they're not into racing, but they're into bikes and they're into tech and mm-hmm. there's, there's things that are happening with wheels and tires and drivetrains that, uh, ultimately ends up on the bike in the garage. But, you know, it's cool to, it's cool to see, see those trends and see where they're starting. And you often see that for the first time at a, at a bike race, you know, at a world cup, yeah. you know, that's where it all starts. Cause someone's looking for a, a, a small advantage, that they might get out of a, out of, you know, the product or a big mm-hmm. advantage that they might get out of the product. And so, yeah, if you're into the tech and you're, it's, it's another reason to watch. Yeah. 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 That's, that's interesting. Cause it's like, I mean, there are sports like that, like NASCAR or formula one where, you know, the tech is a part of it, but yeah, bike racing seems to really blend the two. I mean, you have to be extremely athletic and fit in bike racing and so, yeah, there's like both aspects to it. And also love your point about how racing ha- has changed. It continues to change and evolve. And, you know, if you tried watching a race 10 years ago and you're like, eh, it's kind of boring. It's not for me. It's way different now. Like there's, they're constantly things are being changed to make it more exciting, make it more interesting. And yeah, it's really cool to see that evolution. Yeah. And the coverage is, the coverage has improved with, with drones and, you know, Mm. onboard cameras and things like Mm -hmm. that, that, um, it makes it more exciting. So, um, you see more, you see a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. And you can watch it. It didn't, yeah, this isn't like something where you have to, you know, make sure it's on your TV. I mean, these things now we have the internet so we can watch the races and recaps and all that stuff. So much more accessible. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, Matt, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to to chat with us and kind of give us a inside view of what it's like uh, to be a part of a factory racing team. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, you can get more information about the Trek factory racing team at racing.trekbikes.com. So we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week.